The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, and is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study... Our continuing study in 1 John on impersonal love, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, ready to take in God's Word under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer, so you can use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that we have this wonderful opportunity to be challenged by your word, that we recognize that our souls are filled with all sorts of ideas and thoughts and beliefs that run contrary to your word, and that the process of the spiritual life and spiritual growth is confronting the deeply held convictions of human viewpoint and the arrogance of our own souls with the truth, the absolute truth of your word. That is a process of not being conformed to the world, but renewing our thinking. And Father, as we renovate our thinking through the, uh, under the searchlight of your word, we pray that we would be objective, honest, willing to look at the things that we believe, and being willing to change where we should, that we might exchange human viewpoint, or exchange our human viewpoint for the divine viewpoint of scriptures. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. Love. We began this study two or three weeks ago, and I noted in the beginning of the study that this is one of the most important things for us to understand, I think, just as people, to understand what love is and to realize that so much of the discussion about love that we find in our culture is rather superficial. It's based on an erroneous concept of love, that love is... (coughs) Basically, an emotion. Love is sentiment. Love is something that is based on the attraction of the object rather than on the virtue of the one loving. Love is often reduced to such superficial uh, expressions by the way we treat it, and especially in churches so often with uh, 
activities such as a pastor or a song leader telling everybody to show that you love the person next to you or behind you by standing up and, and giving them a hug. And, and I, I go to a lot of churches, and, and we have to do that. And if you're ever in a church and you have to do that, well, you just sort of you know, bite your tongue. And you, you don't stand there with your, at attention with your hands by your side acting like you're a stump. You know, you have to uh, sometimes do things that make you a little uncomfortable just so you don't come across as being some kind of a uh, weirdo. But that does not mean necessarily that that that's a good practice. Um, It's just so common today. And I hope that as we go through this study that we realize that there's a lot more to love than, than we normally think about. As a working definition, I propose that we would say that love is a mental attitude which desires the best for its object, the highest and best for its object. Starting off, it's a mental attitude. It's not an emotion. Now, there may there's always, when there's a lot of attraction, when there's a lot of rapport with somebody, there's always an accompanying emotion of warmth, an, an emotion of stimulation, and an emotion of excitement. But that is not the essence of what love is, of what real, genuine love is. It is a mental attitude based upon a decision, a decision to love someone. And therefore, it is volitional. It is not something that just happens to you. We don't just fall in love. It's not like a thunderbolt blasting from on high that all of a sudden it's something that happens to us and then one day something happens and it's not there anymore. That kind of love is ephemeral and unstable and it, when people base their idea of love on that, that type of thinking, then it eventuates in a lot of failed marriages. And marriages that as soon as things are not going very, in a very exciting manner, somebody starts looking somewhere else for that stimulation, that excitement, that, that uh, heightened sense of life that comes when um, you're in love and, and uh, everything seems to be going wonderfully. So we define love, then, as a mental attitude which desires the best for its object, the best. That means you have to have some understanding of what the best is in an objective sense, not in a subjective sense. See, not my best, not what I want you to do. That's called manipulation and control. That's not love. That's arrogance. It's not what I think is best for you, but you have to have a sense of external values and objectivity in order to know what is best. You parents, you are to love your children, and sometimes they may not be behaving in manners that engender a tremendous amount of warmth and affection. But because you are an adult, you know what is best. You know what is right for them. You should be thinking as a parent that when this child is born, that at some time in the future when they're approximately 18 years of age, they're going to be on their own and out in the world. And when they're going to be on their own and out in the world, there are certain things that that they need to have mastered as part of life so they can be successful as adults. They need to know some things about good manners. They need to know some things about respect for authority. They need to understand some basic life skills like how to balance a checkbook. They need to know how to get along with people. They need to have respect for law and order. They need to be educated to a certain degree. And they need to have acquired the ability to have some level of self-discipline and self-control. And that can only come from an external source, a little center, 
that you gave birth to. Now, I know you don't like to think of them as a little sinner, but that's what they are. Is only going to follow the lust of the flesh unless somebody teaches them external controls. And who might that be? Well, it's not their teacher at school. It's not their Sunday school teacher. It's not the pastor. It's not the grandparents. Certainly not the grandparents. I haven't met a gra- I haven't met a grandparent yet who understands what discipline is when it comes to their grandchildren. But. Um, It's your job as a parent to know objectively where it is you're taking that child and how to get them there. And often that child will say, but Mommy, I want this, or Daddy, I want to do that. And you have to say, no, it's not right. It's not a good time. Maybe later, uh, maybe when you've demonstrated some more maturity and self-control, the ability to postpone gratification, maybe then we'll do something, but not now. So you have to be able to know what the highest and best is from an objective standard. And if you don't, as an individual, know what that is, we can't really love somebody else, children, spouses, friends, family, whoever the object of love might be. We have to understand an objective framework before we can really love somebody. Now, you can emote all over them till the cows come home, but that's not love, even though that's what our culture calls love. So love is a mental attitude which desires the best for its object. And the object can be God. And in that case, we, we know what's best because God outlines that in his word. The object may be other people in a romantic way, a husband or a wife. It may be family members or it may be friends. But as believers, we know that there is a special category of love that goes for all believers, those who are lovable, those that are unlovable, those that are obnoxious, and those that aren't. And we can all think of one or two believers that we know that we really don't want to have to spend any time with because their personalities are are rather strange, perhaps, or their interests are not our interests. Their likes are not our likes, and maybe they are... uh, haven't grown very much and they're self-absorbed and talk about themselves all the time and never talk about anybody else. Or maybe they just uh, are are scared of silence and they never stop talking. We all know people like that. So we have to exercise another kind of love. And in John 13, 34 and 35, Jesus Christ outlined the ultimate standard for all church-age believers. It's a new commandment. A new commandment, he said, I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And we have gone over this passage again and again and noted that the object of our love as believers is one another, every believer without exception. That means the the lovely and the unlovely, the likable and the unlikable, the attractive and the obnoxious. We are to have this same kind of love. And that's not easy. It cannot come from our own effort. It can't come from the flesh, the sin nature. It's incapable of that. It is a love that can only gradually develop and grow as we take in the Word of God and the Holy Spirit produces growth in our lives. You can't manufacture this kind of love. You can't wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to love so-and-so today because I have to. 
You know, this is something that, that comes as a result of spiritual growth. Sometimes you might have to tell yourself, well, I am not going to exercise my sin nature in terms of anger towards them, jealousy towards them, bitterness towards them today. I'm not. I'm going to confess that sin. Sometimes as we're growing and maturing as believers, we just have to discipline ourselves not to think about certain people, perhaps at times to even avoid them uh, if necessary, simply because we can't quite handle the fact that in their very presence, our sin nature just sort of uh, goes into hyperdrive. And uh, in order to avoid living a life of uh, mental attitude sin binging, we have to avoid them. But that's what you do when you're an immature believer. That hasn't solved the problem. See, the problem is that we're commanded to love one another as Christ loved us. And Christ didn't love us when we were obnoxious sinners at enmity with Him by loving us from afar and just not thinking about us. Now, I know we're going to be stepping on toes and getting a little convicting this morning, so maybe we ought to move on a little bit. But the model, the standard, is as Christ loved us. And so last time we went over some various characteristics of that love that Christ has for us and looked at that in terms of how God demonstrated his love for us. There were eight characteristics I mentioned, and I want to make a few more comments on them because every now and then it comes to me in the middle of the week that, you know, there may be someone either here, at the I doubt anybody here in this congregation, but probably some wacko out there listening over the Internet or, or somebody who hasn't reached maturity or, or really gotten his life together may take something I say and, and not be able to uh, understand what, what a balanced life is all about, that we run into those kinds of people every now and then. So let's look at um, uh, these eight and apply them to God's love for Israel in the Old Testament. I thought that was a unique approach. See, maybe I had too many onions for dinner the other night and thought about that. I'm giving Bryce a hard time about... He eats onions, he has weird dreams, so... Maybe that's what Nebuchadnezzar was doing. Now, you, won't, you, you won't get that if you don't come on Wednesday night. Okay, first characteristic, it's initiating. What I mean by God's love was initiating is that we are who we are. We love because God first loved us, First John 4 says. God's love initiated the plan of salvation. He decided that he would do something to solve the problem of sin before sin ever existed because in his, his omniscience he knew it would exist. So he took the first step. That does not mean that God is always initiating in the same way. Now think about that in terms of the Old Testament and Israel, especially in light of what we've seen during the period of the Judges or later on with the northern kingdom of Israel when they're constantly in idolatry. God does send reminders. Now and then, he would send various prophets with a message calling the people to repentance. And repentance means to change your mind about what you are doing and to turn from the gods of idolatry to back to worshiping him as outlined in the Mosaic Law. But they didn't get beat over the head with a prophet every single day. God gave them time and he gave them space in order to respond to the message and in order to fail and fail miserably. 
So God is not, he's initiating in the broad picture as God initiated and set in motion a plan of salvation in eternity past. And he set it in motion with the creation of man and was continuously working throughout the Old Testament to eventuate in the process of the um, virgin conception and birth of the incarnate second person of the Trinity. So God's love initiated his action towards man. And in his love, which is the initiator in his, of, his, of his essence towards man, God treated man in different ways in different contexts. Just think about the fact that at times God was silent. Now, I know sometimes some of you husbands may think, well, maybe your wife should be silent. This is a good message for her in learning love. But some of you wives may think the same thing about your husband. But God was silent. Just think, he didn't say anything. There was no revelation between Malachi and Matthew. There were times during the periods of the judges when God uh, is really just behind the scene. If you think about a drama, he's back there as the stage manager, but he's not out on stage. We've gone through passages like in the Jephthah episode, and we'll see it in the Samson episode, where God is rarely mentioned. You just see him working in terms of his sovereign providential oversight, but you don't see God uh, personally confronting Israel at, at times. So there's a time to be actively engaged and a time to be um, passively restrained, but you still are loving at the same time. So God's love overall is the one that initiates. Second characteristic I saw was it, it's aggressive. Now sometimes in some situations, and what came to my mind was I was thinking about situations perhaps in a family where you have parents who have a child or an adult child who is in spiritual rebellion, apostasy, or in some kind of antagonism, or sometimes adult children dealing with particularly um, uh, stubborn parents, or are even parents who are involved in sins such as alcoholism or other other sins, who whatever it might be, and they're having to deal with that, or perhaps. Uh, situation between friends and you have a friend that is just in continuous carnality and they really need to have somebody come up behind them with a solid two-by-four and and just pummel them about head, neck, face, and shoulders for a while to get their attention. But that may not be God's role for you. Uh, And by aggressive, I don't want to suggest that. I don't want to suggest that it's our responsibility to constantly be running after somebody. Now, God, watch how God pursues Israel throughout the Old Testament. It's not like that. He never stops. His hand's always out. There's a messenger here and there. But, and he never leaves them or forsakes them. He never says, well, I'm just not going to talk to them anymore. And as far as I'm concerned, they can just go their own way, and I'm going to go call out another people. God doesn't do that. God is continually watching over Israel. And when Israel was in rebellion and, and in negative volition and in apostasy, God just took one step back. But he's still actively involved. And so, aggressive love does not mean obnoxious love. And I know that there are some people, and I've watched this in Christianity, that in the name of love, some people become obnoxious in their love. They don't understand what it is to give people the freedom to fail. And God gives all of us the freedom to fail 
a lot of the times, if God actually dealt with us the way we want to deal with other uh, sinners in our periphery, then we probably wouldn't be alive and sitting here right now. Because we think things ought to happen right now and they ought to change and do what we want yesterday. That's not love. Once again, that goes back to having that greater perspective of objectivity in how people work. People, you know, the freedom to succeed is directly proportional to the freedom to fail. That's true in economics. It's true in business. It's true in freedom of a nation. It's true in marriage. It's true in any relationship. And, and when we love somebody, we have to give them the, the freedom to fail so that they can have the freedom to succeed. You can't force things. Uh, aggressive love means that there is merely an attitude of confidence and boldness on our part in dealing with people. We're not coming from a position of weakness. We're not trying to curry favor with them. We're not trying to uh, uh, manipulate a certain response from them. See, that would be a works model. That's a lack of grace orientation. We're not loving them so that they'll straighten up and love us back. We're not going to be kind to them because it's about time for them to start being kind to us. We are going to deal with them from a position of strength and not a position of weakness. And that is because of the third category we looked at, humility. Love has to be humble. If you don't understand what humility is and what a lack of arrogance is, then you cannot love. People who are self-absorbed, by definition, as we'll see this morning, cannot love. Love does not seek its own glorification. Love does not seek its own agenda Love is seeking what is the highest and best for the other person. And that is ultimately demonstrated in the fact that Jesus Christ humbled himself to the point of death, even the death on the cross, that in the midst of the most extreme form of rejection, the most extreme form of hostility, Jesus Christ did not say, I'm just fed up with these creatures. They can consign all of them to hell. I'm stepping down off the cross. He put up with more rejection, more torment, more pain. And on the human side, because he was a man and because he had all the emotions of man, he experienced all the negative, um, and I don't mean that by sin, but all of the negative associations that go with rejection. And uh, yet, from, not from an attitude of self-absorption, but... He went to the cross in humility and went through the most intense, excruciating, and agonizing suffering that that we could ever, beyond anything we could possibly imagine. And then I said, fourth, it was an intense love, and that means it's not something that just lackadaisical. It's not something that is that is weak or insipid, but it is something that has a zealous determination. We know that this is our job. We are to love one another. And so there is a, a, a sense of almost passion, but I don't mean to imply that in, a, in a, an emotional sense, about our love. It is not going to be stopped. It's not going to be turned aside by the negative reactions of somebody else. There's a loyalty. That's the fifth category, was steadfastly loyal. There's a loyalty, and a loyalty is not necessarily the other person first, but it's to God first and then to the other person. Because we love not because of who and what that person is, or even who and what we are, but because of who God is and what Christ did for us. The pattern is always at the cross. It's a consecrated love. That means it's set apart to a purpose, and we're set apart 
as members of the royal family of God, we are saints. That means sanctified ones or set apart ones. And this is the, the characteristic of the mature believer. Christ said that unbelievers will know we are his students, his disciples. That's what disciple means. It means a student, an advancing believer, because we have love for one another. A seventh, it's dedicated. We think about it. It's a commitment. It's uh, part of our mental attitude that comes with uh, advancing maturity in the spiritual life. And it's a devoted love. A devoted love, you can be devoted in love to someone without being physically present, talking to them every day. In fact, if somebody is in antagonism towards you, you may have to take two or three steps back And it may not be a good idea to be directly involved in that relationship for a while. See, all those kinds of decisions are part of wisdom. And wisdom from the Old Testament concept of chokhmah, chokhmah means a skill, a skill. Skills don't happen automatically. Skills develop with practice. They develop over time. And that's why especially we look at Daniel more as skill, as wisdom literature than prophetic literature because we see there how the doctrine in Daniel's soul enabled him skillfully to live in the midst of tremendous opposition and antagonism in one of the most pagan societies that was ever existed on the earth, a society that was one of the most hostile to biblical truth and hostile to the Jews, a society characterized as the enemy, the representation of the kingdom of man over against the kingdom of God. Babel is everything that man wants to be and hopes to be in his highest and best without depending upon God. And yet in the midst of that, we see how Dan, Daniel was able to wisely, skillfully apply doctrine to all of life's situations. And so it takes wisdom. That means that to love wisely There has to be doctrinal orientation. We have to truly have grown and matured in our understanding of the Word before we can uh, honestly uh, love one another. So those eight characteristics reflect the work of Christ on the cross for us. Now, another passage we need to examine is in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. 1 John chapter 4, verse 18 reads, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. And the word perfect there is the Greek adjective telios, which means mature. Just about every time you find the word perfect in your English Bible, you can scratch it out and write in either complete or mature. The word teleos, teleao is the verb, telos is the adjective. Almost every time you find one, one of those words in the Greek New Testament with one possible exception, it never means perfect in the sense of flawless. It always means to bring something to completion or to a state of maturity. And so John writes, there's no fear in love. Now, most people, when they think of the opposite of love... They think of hatred. They think of antagonism. They think of perhaps bitterness. But what John juxtaposes here is the concept of fear and love. Now, why is that? Because fear, that inner anxiety about life, 
and meaning and purpose and security is the core emotion, I think, that is part of the driving factor of the sin nature. Now, why do I say that? It's the first emotional sin mentioned in the Scriptures. When Adam and Eve ate from the fruit of the tree the knowledge of good and evil, and it became apparent to them that instantly that they had done something that, that changed reality, when God came looking for them in the garden, every day the Scripture says God walked with them in the garden and God taught them about all the different aspects of life. When God came on that particular day, they ran and hid. And why did they hide? Because they were afraid. See, that's the core emotion. That's the first emotion that sin produced is fear. And fear of of losing something, fear of life, anxiety is at the core of almost, as, a, as an emotional sin of hatred, bitterness, all these things, there's an, this inner anxiety or fear that underlies that. And that can only be counteracted by understanding impersonal love. So John says there's no fear in love, but perfect love, completed love, casts out fear. So that they are opposites. Perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not completed in love. That means fear focuses on punishment and condemnation, and the one who loves isn't afraid of what the consequences might be. The consequences, for example, uh, might be rejection. The consequences might be a hostile reaction. The consequences might be something negative, and you're afraid of that. I don't want that to happen. You know, we want to reach out sometimes to somebody, and we're afraid, well, you know, they're just going to reject it. Well, that's, that's fear. So perfect love, completed love, is not going to be motivated. It's going to be the opposite of fear. So what we learn from some of these observations on love is that love is not a sentimental concept. It doesn't mean you're always nice and sweet. Sometimes you're going to be tough. Sometimes you're going to be... Uh, unappreciated because of your hard stand, especially I'm thinking about parents. Sometimes you have to be a, a, a tough disciplinarian with your kids. The more of a strong will you have in that child, the more of a rugged disciplinarian you have to be. In fact, some of you parents may have a child that is um, very strong-willed, and what that means is you have to ride herd on them 20 hours a day. The problem today is with the job demands of mom and dad both being out of the house, they don't want to be the bad guy when they come home and spend two hours or three hours with their kids and ride herd on them the whole time because they're afraid they're going to uh, alienate their children. But somebody has to or they never get disciplined. They never understand the concept of self-control. And by the time a a child goes six or seven years without any uh, discipline, then it be, it, with each year, it, the difficulty almost increases geometrically. And by the time that child hits puberty, well, you're going to be knocking on my door wanting to know, Pastor, what can I do about my rebellious teenager? And I'm going to say, well, not a whole lot right now. You had your chance. So, and then you won't like me and you'll go find another church. <laughs> you'll say, I'm, I'm not compassionate or loving. Love is also honest. You have to be tough. Love is wise and discerning because it's based on doctrine. Therefore, you have to have a lot of doctrine in your soul to be able to exercise love in a wise and discerning manner. 
Love is not subjective. It's not based on insecurity or trying to acquire the affections of its object. Love basically means that we are going to conscientiously treat everyone, attractive, unattractive, obnoxious, or kind, or as people, individuals created in the image and likeness of God. We look at passages in the Scripture how Jesus approached the woman at the well. This is a woman that, that was considered unclean by the disciples. They wouldn't, they wouldn't speak to her first because she was a Samaritan, not because she was a woman. That was secondary. They wouldn't speak to her at all, and yet Jesus is going to stop and speak to her. In their culture, this is the most unattractive unappreciated, unlovely person there was. So Jesus uh, reaches out to her at the temple. The blind man, he's an outcast. Jesus stops and heals him. He loved the undesirables, the trash, the homeless of his society. And we ought to be able to look at people who are physically uh, unattractive, physically repulsive, uh, physically undesirable and look at them not in terms of who and what they are right now but in the fact that they're still an individual created in the image and likeness of God and therefore despite any wrong behavior any obnoxious or antagonistic behavior they are deserving of kindness gentleness, respect and love simply because they're created in the image and likeness of God now whenever I talk about that I always remember situation occurred, oh, I don't know, it must have been five or six years ago now, because the lady in question has since gone to be with the Lord. But when I grew up, uh, one, of the, one of these great little old, I always thought she was a little old lady. She lived to be like 90, and I know, uh, but she was just wonderful in her love for the Lord, and she was the grandmother of two friends of mine. So we always called her, all of us kids called her grandmother. And she was the cook at a Christian camp where, where I went and where I worked for many years, and we used to just always give her a hard time, and she would make baked cakes for lunch the next day. And her grandsons and I would usually raid the kitchen about 2 in the morning, and she'd get up the next morning and wonder where her cakes went. But she lived in a trailer behind one of her son's house, home in, in Houston. And it wasn't in one of the best part of towns. And one night, about 2 in the morning, she woke up and heard a noise. And a man had broken into the house, and he had a gun, and he was uh, uh, robbing her. And he came in, and she woke up, and she was startled, and she said, Who's there? Who's there? And he came in, and he held her gunpoint, and he said, Lady, I don't want to hear a word out of you, and, or, or I'm going to beat you with this gun. And um, just to keep you quiet, I'm going to tie you up and, and, and tape your mouth shut. And she said, I won't say a word. And you can take, I'll show you where all the money is, and you can take everything you want to, and I'll help you find it if you just let me tell you one thing. Did you know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you? That no matter how bad you've been, no matter what crimes you've committed, Jesus Christ paid the price for every one of those sins. And if you just accept him as your Savior, you can go to heaven. And now you can do whatever you want to with me. He just said, lady, just shut up and don't say anything and let me take all your money. But she gave him the gospel, and who knows whether or not he ever responded to the gospel. But that just shows that her total focus was not on her personal safety, not on her personal possessions, not on who and what she had. 
She had an eternal divine perspective that said the most important thing in this situation is this guy's soul. And that's what love is, is understanding that no matter how obnoxious or dangerous or hostile or, or unlikable somebody might be, the focus is on who they are as a fallen creature, in the, yet still in the image and likeness of God, who's deserving, just as deserving of God's highest and best as anybody else. Because we all have a tendency and arrogance to, to try to put ourselves on some sort of horizontal plane where we compare ourselves with one another, and so obviously we're much better than anybody else, because when we look at whoever we have in mind, they're so much worse than everybody else, or they're obviously worse than me, just that maybe even nobody else can see it. But when we take all of us and compare us with that standard that God has, the, the differences between the best of us and the worst of us are, are minor. They're, they're, they're almost imperceptible in relationship to God's absolute standard. And so, so often we're looking at somebody treating them in love in light of, in light of their, their lack of good behavior and how difficult it is, and we fail to re- realize how difficult it is sometimes for God to love us, except God's love never increases, diminishes, never changes. It's always the same. And He knows everything there is to know about all of us. He knows all the secret things, all the horrible things, all of those terrible, embarrassing things that when you're alone and you think about some of the things you've done, some of the things you've said, you blush to yourself. But God knows about all those things, and yet God's love is still at the absolute maximum for us and every other human being because of who and what he is. And this is the kind of love that is to characterize every believer and the kind of love that is defined for us in a couple of important passages in Scripture, specifically 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So why don't you turn in your Bibles, and we'll go through 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 8a. Now, The first three verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 express the priority of love over everything else that we can think of. And Paul uses, Paul uses a way of expression called hyperbole. Hyperbole. Hyperbole is when, is exaggeration. He's going to think of the most extreme situation possible to demonstrate that no matter how great, wonderful, fantastic you could possibly be, and he's not saying that this is possible, it's just saying that within the realm of thought, this is the greatest extreme. That if you had all these things and did all these things, if you were just super wonderful, and you did had all these talents and gifts to the maximum anybody could ever imagine, and you had that without love, then it wouldn't matter what you had, it would be worthless. That's the thought in these first Three verses. He is not necessarily saying that these uh, situations are possible. He is merely expressing through hyperbole uh, the exaggerated uh, extreme in order to make a point. He uses a third class condition, which just expresses that the hypothesis here that this is a hypothetical situation. And he says, if I speak with the languages, tongues should always be translated languages in the Bible, glossa, 
is the Greek word, and it refers to either the physical organ in your mouth, between your upper teeth and lower teeth, with which you articulate words, or it refers to that which is articulated by that object, languages. And because the writers of the King James, or because the old King James uh, diction, they talk, spoke uh, using the word tongues to refer to languages, it's become confusing in, in, in modern language, and so that was part of the reason that gave rise to the modern tongues movement. But if they just translated this languages, then I don't think we would have had a modern tongues movement. Paul says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. Now, somebody always comes along on this passage, and they say, see, there's angelic languages. No, this does not support angelic languages. It's hyperbole. Paul is saying, if I speak with all known languages, conceivable, real, or imagined. That's what he's saying. Uh, There's no indication that angels have their own language. Every time an angel appears in the Scripture, he speaks in the language of the recipient. There is no indication anywhere that there is such a thing as an angelic language. Paul is just talking hyperbolically here. If I speak with the tongues of men and with the languages of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, we all think in terms of our own frame of reference here that a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal are just just a lot of noise and no real meaning, just a cacophonous noise, and there's no significance there. And, and, and in essence, you get the point that what Paul is saying is, if I could speak with tongues and see the Corinthians were, were beginning to emphasize the fact that, that some of them had the gift of languages. They didn't, but they were confusing what they did, which was an ecstatic utterance, with what had taken place in the pagan rituals that they participated in. And one of the most uh, popular pagan rituals of that day was the worship of Dionysius. Dionysius, also Bacchus in the the, uh, uh, Roman system, was the god of wine and a number of other things. And the way that you would worship him was they, they had these cultic centers up in the hills, and they would go up there, and the priestesses in the Dionysian cult would pass out a tremendous amount of wine, and everybody would drink to their heart's content, and hoping that they would become identified with the God. And then they would begin to dance, and they would just work themselves up into an emotional fervor, and if they got excited enough and stimulated enough, then hopefully they would begin to speak in ecstatic utterance. And see, by imbibing of the wine, they were imbibing of the essence of the God, and that if they got drunk enough, then the God would speak through them. And that was this glossolalic utterance, and that was a mark of someone who had a close fellowship with their God and had super spirituality. Well, remember, the Corinthians were not the most spiritual bunch in the New Testament. In fact, they were the most messed up, confused, carnal bunch in the New Testament. And what happened in the Corinthian church is that having been saved out of this pagan background, they were taking their pagan notions of spirituality and they were, in, re, trying, they were reinterpreting what Paul taught on the basis of their pagan frame of reference. And one of the things that characterized the activities of these maenads, that's what they called the priestesses who danced around in the Bacchanal feast, the Dionysian feast, what would happen is that when they were 
They were dancing around. They had little symbols that were they had in their hands, and they would clink them back and forth. And then they had bells wrapped around their ankles. And so with all of this noise, they were hoping they would attract the attention of the God and that he would come and, uh, and fill them, and they would speak in glossolalic utterances. So Paul is being, not only is he being hyperbolic, there's a little tongue-in-cheek sarcasm going on here in this first statement. And he says, if I speak with the languages of men and of angels, like you guys think you're doing when you're up there worshiping the, in a pagan manner, but don't have love. In other words, the issue is you better have love. It doesn't matter what other talents or gifts you think you possess. If you're not doing it on the basis of impersonal love, then you're just as, as meaningless and empty as the pagan rituals. Verse 2. He says, now, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith. Now, I want you to notice this is hyperbole here. No one, no apostle knew everything. Apostles were given certain revelation. Paul was given certain revelation. Peter was given certain revelation. He wasn't given what Paul was given. In fact, Peter says, listen, there's some things in Scripture that, are, that, that Paul has written that I find difficult to understand. John was given another set of revelation. No one individual, that's what the, gift, the gifted body of Christ is all about, is everybody is given different abilities, different gifts, and it works together as a team. No one, not even the Apostle Paul, knew everything. He didn't know all the mysteries. That's unrevealed doctrine. He didn't know all the mysteries. He didn't have all knowledge. He did not know every bit of revelation. Some was given to Peter. Some was given to others. He didn't have all faith. That is, no one is, no one does, no one ever has. He's just speaking in an extreme, exaggerated manner that even if I had all of this, but do not have love, I'm nothing. In other words, without impersonal love, I haven't reached spiritual maturity, which is where the Christian life really happens. And if you don't have it, then your life is just vanity. It's empty and it's meaningless and you're no more meaningful than those clanging cymbals and gongs in the first verse. Third verse. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor. Now, very few people have done that or would do that, except maybe some crazy ascetic in the third or fourth century. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor and deliver my body to be burned. See, he's talking in terms of the extremes. And no one, of course, would, would do this and just immolate themselves for the purpose of of um, being spiritual. It says, if I were to give all my possessions to feed the poor and deliver my body to be burned and do not have love, it profits me nothing. And the bottom line on those first three verses is to stress the importance of love. That it's not, the stress is not on what spiritual gifts we possess, what talents we possess, where we go to church, how much doctrine we know, or any other factor. The issue is it all ultimately leads to Christian growth and maturity comes under the category of love. That's why when I lay out the problem-solving devices, I have the love triplex at the top. Personal love for God, impersonal love for all mankind, and occupation for Christ are all interrelated, and they all characterize the mature adult believer. And then in verse 4, he begins to give several characteristics of love, several characteristics 
of impersonal love. Verse 4, love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. So love is defined with two positive adjectives and three negative descriptions. First, he says that love is patient. Patient, it's enduring. It is long-suffering, literally, from the Greek word makrothemia. Makrothemia literally means to endure a long time under negative reactions. Makros meaning long, themia suffering. Literally, that's what it means. It means to endure rejection, hostility, difficult circumstances without faltering, without giving up. Love, it's not just the idea of patience. It is the idea of endurance and, and hanging in there in difficult circumstances. It's the ability or capacity to endure hostility, rejection, or ill treatment without retaliation, reaction, mental attitude, sins of resentment, hostility, anger, or revenge. In contrast, think in terms of the epistle to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 6, 8, Somebody offended one of them. They took them to court and filed a lawsuit against them. That's sort of a modern ring to it, doesn't it? They weren't long-suffering. They were, in fact, as soon as somebody said something to them, they immediately reacted in self-absorption and went to court. Second, love is kind. This is the Greek word, Christuomai. Christuomai, and that basically means grace in action. Love is grace in action. That's why I keep saying you can't love if you don't understand grace. Grace precedes love. Grace means that that God dealt with us not on the basis of who we are and what we've done, but on who He is and what Christ did on the cross. It's not conditional. It's unconditional. And to the degree that we understand unconditional grace, to that degree we can have unconditional love for people. Because it's not based on their failures or their successes. It's based on the absolute character of God. Christuomai means undeserved kindness. See, there's something positive there. It's not just the absence of mental attitude sins. It's not just that I'm going to endure your rejection and I'm not going to be hostile towards you or have mental attitude sins. But it is something that is, is, is positive, something that is that builds up. It's undeserved kindness. In contrast to this, the Corinthians were divisive. They argued with one another. They were arrogant. They were emphasizing in terms of the spiritual gifts that, well, I speak in tongues and you don't, so you're just some second-class Christian. See, that's not being kind. But in impersonal love, we are kind to people who don't deserve it. We, treat, we are gentle to people who are antagonistic. Third, it's not... Jealous. It's not jealous from the Greek word xylos, which emphasizes self-promotion. Love is not interested in promoting itself over somebody else and, and, and operating on insecurity that somebody else is getting all of the attention and all of the approbation and I'm not. So I want to get some approbation here. And so that's what happened in their meetings is one person would start talking and then another person would start talking because the one person who was talking was, ta- was explaining how God had done something in their life and somebody else would say, well, God's doing something better in my life and uh, I'm better than you are. And so their, their meetings would just deteriorate into discord. Fourth, we're told 
Love does not brag. It does not brag. It is not purpuruomai. Purpuruomai refers to a braggart, somebody who's always talking about themselves. Always talking about what's going on in their life, their problems, their difficulties, or their successes. And everything that God is doing in their life isn't God wonderful. But, of course, what the real statement is, is God's doing it in my life. Isn't that great? God's not doing anything in your life. You're a loser. See, you've got to read between the lines sometimes what people are saying. This is somebody who is using uh, words to embellish and heighten their own uh, achievements, promoting themselves. And then finally it says, love is not arrogant. Boy, there's the difficulty because the basic orientation of our sin nature is arrogance. You can just stamp a big A on each of us most of the time. Even when we're trying to act humble, it's just false humility and it's another form of arrogance. The word here is fusiao. In the Greek, which is one of the harshest expressions of arrogance, and it's interesting that it's, the word's only used seven times in the New Testament. Six of them are in Corinthians. These people were really messed up. I can't ever understand why the charismatic movement decided that tongues was so great because the Corinthians spoke in tongues. Almost anything the Corinthians did was wrong. And why would you want to emulate them at all? They, they were distorting and screwing up every spiritual gift. Remember, arrogance operates on four basic skills. Four basic skills, and they form a cycle, a continuous cycle of degeneration. First of all, self-absorption. That's the orientation of arrogance, is me. And we become absorbed with ourselves and our agenda, our plans, our hopes, our dreams, and we begin to focus on whatever we want right now, whatever will please us, the key to immaturity is the inability to postpone self-gratification. And we live in a culture that can't postpone self-gratification because they're self-absorbed. They want it now. And so self-absorption leads to the second arrogant skill, which is self-indulgence. We are absorbed with our wants, our needs, our pleasures, and so we want to indulge them just as soon as possible. Self-absorption leads to self-indulgence, and then when we're indulging ourselves and spoiling ourselves with everything sooner or later, we start having problems, and so now we get into the third arrogant skill, which is self-justification. We have to justify everything that we're doing. Well, you know, if, if my parents had treated me differently, or if I had had a better home upbringing, or if history had been different, if I hadn't been born in this part of town or that part of town or in this cultural group or that racial group, then I wouldn't have these problems. It's always somebody else's fault, and there's always some reason why, why things just didn't work out, not my volition. It's never my volition. It's always something else. I've, I've got uh, some sort of mental illness or whatever it might be. You know, we need to draw a distinction between mental illness and brain disease, but um, there's no such thing as mental illness. There are brain diseases. But we blame, we look for anything we can to blame our irresponsibility and failures on other than accepting personal responsibility and volition. That's self-justification. And when we're in self-justification, we reconstruct the world according to our own likes and dislikes and we get into self-deception. We're completely divorced from reality and have distorted reality. We must always remember that arrogance is tenacious. It never gives up. 
and it masks itself in all kinds of good ways. And that we are all arrogant many, many times and we just don't like to face it. Because it is the basic orientation of the sin nature, but under spiritual growth, we can get away from arrogance and we can truly, genuinely love people as Christ has loved us. 1 Corinthians 13.5 says that love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, and does not take into account a wrong suffered. Now, what does that mean, it does not act unbecomingly? That Greek word is askemoneo, askemoneo, and it means to act rudely, to act in violation of social norms. See, some people have a difficult time learning how to not act rudely because their parents never taught them good manners. They never understood anything as children about having respect for somebody else and learning just basic things about how to address adults. I've said this before. I'll say it again. Parents, we need to teach the kids to address their Sunday school teachers as Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so, to develop respect for positions of authority. And I notice people around here have trouble. I'm not Mr. Dean. I'm Pastor Dean. You know, when people have a title, use the correct title or, or Reverend Dean. And we should train our kids to teach, to, to do that. Uh, you know, if you go to a doctor... I don't know where it came in. In the 70s, there was this reaction to authority, so everything went towards informality. And you have, you know, all of a sudden you heard people called Dr. Jimmy instead of Dr. Smith. And I, I, just, I just have a problem with that. I mean, if you guys are in the military, you don't call the uh, commander uh, Colonel Bill. All of it comes down to the fact that we... Through, the, through teaching manners, through teaching etiquette, we teach our children something about respect for authority so that when they get in difficult situations, they have been trained to respond uh, in a way that is, is a basic to impersonal love. It does not act rudely. It is not impolite. It does not show bad manners. That's what it does not act unbecomingly means. Then it does not seek its own. This is comparable to arrogance. It is the verb zeteo plus the reflexive pronoun oitas. And this is exactly what they were doing, fulfilling their own gratification whenever they want to. In the course, the Corinthians did this every time they had the Lord's table. They just wanted to get there and gorge on the food because at that time in the church, they'd usually have a meal called a love feast, which would precede the Lord's table, and they would eat a lot of food and drink a lot of wine and get drunk, which argues for the fact that they weren't just drinking grape juice when it came to communion. It's awfully hard to get drunk on grape juice. So they were drinking wine at communion, and not that that was wrong, that was a standard practice. And uh, that's, Jesus drank an alcoholic beverage when he drank wine at the Last Supper. But that's all they wanted to do was get together and gorge and get drunk, so they were having quite a party and uh, in violation of this. So Paul says it doesn't seek its own, it's not provoked, and does not take into account a wrong suffered. That is the Greek, not provoked is the Greek word paroxuno, which means they weren't hypersensitive. They weren't easily incited to a reaction or to anger or to hostility or to revenge. 
And see, just the when you're arrogant, you're, you're, you're hypersensitive. Every time somebody says something, you immediately assume that they're getting on your case, they're judging you, they're somehow talking about you, and somehow you're being, being unjustly treated. And we see so much of that in our culture. Every time we turn around, there's somebody in some minority group, whether it's people who are, uh, have some uh, uh, debilitating physical problem and can't play professional golf the way it should be played, or whatever else it is, and so they go sue somebody. Well, that's just hypersensitive arrogance, and it is endemic in our culture. So love doesn't seek its own. It doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. It's not going to keep tabs on everything. And then all of a sudden, one day, you'll come walking in the house. Some wife comes walking home, and the husband says, Okay, i got a whole checklist here, and you've been doing all of this for the last 20 years, and I'm out of here. That's not love. You forget things. And that means you take them, you put them in the water closet of your mind, and you flush it. And it doesn't come back. You don't remember it tomorrow, next week, or five years later. You forget it. You never bring it up again. That's part of impersonal love. It's not easy, but it's mandated. Then we come to 13.6. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness. There's the word adikei. Which is adike, John says in 1 John 5, it all adike is sin. So it doesn't rejoice in sin, doesn't have a positive attitude towards sin and kind of chuckle about it. It does not rejoice in sin, but rejoices with the truth, with aletheia, with doctrine. Doctrine is the highest priority. And then verse 7, which is a difficult one and really challenges us, it bears all things. Now that doesn't mean it puts up with all things. The Greek word is stege, which means to conceal, to protect people's privacy. That means when your husband or wife does something really foolish, you don't run around and tell everybody about it or bring it up in prayer meeting. Say, oh, I need to tell you about my wife or my husband, and we need to really pray for them, and that just becomes an excuse for gossip. Now, it love conceals all things. That doesn't mean to cover it up if there's something illegal going on, but it means you're not going to parade other people's failures out in front of the world. It believes, not believes. This doesn't refer to credulity or, um, and believing every lie somebody tells you. It's trusting, having a basic orientation of trust. That's, you can't love if you're without trust. It hopes all things. It is confident in itself, and endures all things. It does not react in anger, hostility, bitterness, or jealousy. And then 13.8, love never fails. And that sets up the remainder of the chapter, which is going to talk about the permanence of love versus the impermanence of spiritual gifts, specifically knowledge, wisdom, prophecy, and tongues. In contrast, love Endures. Love is going to stay the course throughout the church age, but these other gifts are temporary and will disappear by the end of the apostolic period. Love is the mandate for the Christian in the church age, and we're going to cover this again and again and again as we go through uh, our study on the Gospel of John because it is a major theme in John. So with this, we just scratch the surface and there will be a lot of repetition on love as we go through 
1 John with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to look at your word, to be challenged by these things, to recognize that such a high standard is set before us, yet it's a standard we cannot achieve on our own. We can only achieve it through God the Holy Spirit and through walking moment by moment in dependence upon him through the learning and application of your word. Father, we know that this can only be achieved once we're saved. Salvation is by grace, faith alone, in Christ alone, and by simply trusting in his completed work on the cross. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is uncertain of their eternal destiny or unsure of their eternal life, that right now they would make that sure and certain. All you need to do is believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. No ritual is involved. No bargain with God. No moral reformation is necessary. Scripture says simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we have learned today about the nature of impersonal love and that we might continue to abide in Christ and walk by the Spirit that this fruit might be produced in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.